The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to When the Facts Change. Brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. KiwiBank is committed to supporting New Zealanders' understanding of the economic issues that are shaping their lives and the future of Aotearoa. And don't forget to subscribe so you get our podcast every week. This week on When the Facts Change, I want to talk about how things have changed with China and in particular, what's going on in Australia. They're really having a crack at China and also what's going on in New Zealand. You might recall in the last couple of weeks, We decided to take out the word genocide from a parliamentary motion agreed by all the parties which criticised China and its treatment of the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province. And the reason we took out the word genocide is because we were afraid. We were afraid it would hurt trade. In fact, Damien O'Connor, our trade minister, said it would hurt trade if we went as hard as the Greens and ACT had wanted. And there was a bit of a fuss at the time. And when the dust had settled, we all thought, yeah, Being a little more cautious than the Australians was probably a good idea. And we have to be very careful before we criticise China and really express our values in favour of human rights and against, frankly, genocide. Well, actually, this week, I want to push back against that. I want to say that actually, by standing up for our views on human rights, in many ways, the same way that we challenged not just America, but the French on nuclear-free And we've stood up in various forums over the decades in favour of human rights. I want to say, actually, it wouldn't hurt us that much. In fact, probably not much at all if we were to stand up to China, which is becoming a bully. It's not often that I say we should do what the Australians do, but I want to make the case this week that the Australian approach to China, which on the face of it has hurt Australia. You've all heard of the stories of the wine tariffs, which have meant that some wine companies in Australia were initially struggling to sell wine into China. There's been tariffs introduced on sugar, blockages at the ports on barley and coal. And everyone says, gee, those Australians, they're crazy. Why are they being so tough on China? We'll talk this week about how it hasn't actually hurt Australia that much. We'll also talk about how, for New Zealand, being exposed to China is not really about having assets in China and joint ventures and partnerships with Chinese companies because, actually, they've mostly failed. And secondly, we're actually quite good at selling commodities and other goods into China to someone at the border, and we make plenty of good money out of it, in large part because China needs those commodities. And even if China decided to put tariffs on They'd get them in the end anyway, through a back door or through another means, or we'd be able to sell them to someone else at exactly the same price. That's the case I'm going to make this week, but I'm going to start by going to a portiki. I want to take you to a kiwi fruit farm owned and run by a New Zealand resident, a Chinese-born man and his wife. His name's Hao Yu Gao. He featured in a very interesting court hearing and ruling in the last couple of years, which tells us a lot about New Zealand's relationship with China, how China treats intellectual property rights, and how 
we have to be much more cautious about how we deal with China. We were quite trusting. In fact, like many people around the world, we were very trusting in those early years when China joined the World Trade Organization. Things were going swimmingly. We got our free trade agreement with China. There was an awful increase in trade, both exports and imports. In fact, our exports still outnumber the imports coming in from China. But by 2012, Mr. Hao Yu Gao had discovered that New Zealand had this amazing brand of kiwi fruit, kiwi gold, the golden fruit, not just in appearance, but in actual, you know, in the bank account gold. It sold like hotcakes. And New Zealand had the patent. We developed it. Zespri has the intellectual property. So on that farm in Apotiki, it was farmed. It grew. And the great thing about kiwi fruit, you cut some shoots off, you can graft it, you can, like a lot of, of those vines, take it somewhere. You can put it in a bag, keep it moist, move it around. And that's what happened. Mr. Hao Yu Gao moved with his cuttings to China, to some partners, and gave those cuttings to them, uh, signed his own intellectual property license, it turns out. And over the last six or so years, China has been fantastic at growing its own version of Kiwi Gold, completely illegally in breach of intellectual property laws, not just in China, but in New Zealand. And Mr. Hao Yu Gao was taken to court by Zespri in uh, 2016-17-18, and the High Court ruled eventually in early 2020 that he had breached massively the intellectual property rights of Zespri and that he had to provide damages to Zespri of $15 million. That's not the end of the story, though, with Zespri, because you'd think they'd be feeling pretty burnt by their connections with China. Of course, they are still selling into China, but China is now producing 4,000 hectares worth of kiwi gold, which actually is about half of our total exports into China. So it's not a small amount. So why would Zespri want to have anything more to do with it? Well, if you can't beat them, join them. And Zespri is looking to do that later this year by partnering with some of these illegal growers to try and at least sell them the sticker and get a little cut by helping them improve their product quality, getting connected to their supply chains into China and try to work together with the illegally produced kiwi fruit producers in China so that at the edges of the respective seasons, Zespri could benefit that idea of a trial partnership with a illegal grower of New Zealand's kiwi gold in China is going to go to kiwi fruit growers uh, later this year in June, and we'll see whether they approve it. And New Zealand authority has already decided not to. The reason I focus on this is to show you the difficulty of working in joint ventures with Chinese companies. In many ways, because those Chinese companies are working at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party, the government there. And it taught us an interesting lesson that in many ways, companies in China are there as part of a national project. And that's been the big learning of Western companies and countries over the last decade or so. Those grand hopes when we started in the early 2000s was that China would open up to the world, it would liberalise, it would join the great multinational liberal trading system and that it would be infused with the democratic values of the rest of the world and eventually become just like the rest of us, rules-based, respecting of laws, stable, democratic, fantastic. Well, that hasn't happened because in 2013, Xi Jinping got into power and has gradually over time increased the state's power 
on the companies that are operating globally and has said and put into law that those companies have to work to serve the interests of the Chinese Communist Party and of the state of China, not the shareholders or the owners of those companies, but the state of China. And that's quite a different concept to how we see international trade and diplomacy, really. And that's why I think it's time that we're more robust with China, that we introduce that word genocide into that parliamentary motion, because we don't have as much to fear as we think we do. And we should stand up for these values that we've had for many a decade and do, in effect, what the Australians have done, which has been much clearer about what we think is right. We'll talk to an expert in Australia on exactly how it hasn't hurt the Australian economy to take that more aggressive stance. But up next, we first talk to Natasha Hamilton-Hart, who is an expert at Auckland University on trade with East Asia and has seen what New Zealand companies have to do to get into China and how they can operate in China, maybe without those joint ventures, and be able to be strong without having to kowtow to the Chinese government. That's when the facts change this week. Well, hello to Natasha Hamilton-Hart from the Auckland University, who is an expert in uh, East Asian business and has worked a lot with New Zealand companies uh, dealing with the rest of the world. Natasha, thank you very much for joining When the Facts Change at the spin-off. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us what's different uh, for New Zealand companies when they go into particularly China. How is it a different place to do business, to sell, buy, maybe even try to start a business? Well, there's a lot that's different. There's the obvious things, people speaking Chinese, mostly Mandarin, but also potentially other dialects, and you're living in a whole new country. But I think the areas that perhaps surprise some of our businesses when they go out into China and other Asian markets, it's not just the differences that you expect. The food is different, the language is different, but the law is different and the regulations are different. And not just specific laws that allow you to do this or prevent you from doing that, but it is the way laws get applied and developed and enforced or not enforced. And all of that can create a great deal of uncertainty about what the regulatory situation is and how you, in fact, should comply with it. So the regulatory uncertainty and, I guess, the lack of the rule of law as we understand it is one that trips up many companies. And we've had quite a few New Zealand companies who've gone into China with great hopes and invested quite a bit of money, and often they've lost them. There's been various examples um, we could cite. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, one of the areas that there's been problems with is joint ventures. And many larger companies, when they're trying to distribute or work more closely with companies inside China, have formed joint ventures. Can you tell us a bit more about um, why someone would form a joint venture and maybe why they don't need to? Well, in some cases, a company will form a joint venture in China because it has to as a legal requirement, and that is if it is operating in any area that the government has on its negative list or on its restricted list, which will include anything to do with owning or using land, uh, certain sectors that are sensitive until recently, for instance, finance, automobile manufacturing, other kinds of technology sectors, there will be a requirement to take on a joint venture partner. And almost always, 
the requirement to transfer technology and intellectual property to that joint venture partner. But in many cases, a joint venture partner is a good idea for a foreigner going into business in a place where the regulations are opaque and the legal system is very different. And the joint venture partner can actually be your ally in helping you um, learn the terrain and navigate all of those differences, which as a foreigner, you will never understand as well as someone who's been used to that system. So your joint venture partner can be an enormous asset in China. But of course, the more you rely on them, the more vulnerable you are. And if your joint venture partner does not fully disclose what it's up to, as Fonterra has found out more than once, if the the details of your partner on paper are not as they, you know, if they're misrepresenting reality, uh, this can create problems downstream. So there isn't one simple way of working with a joint venture partner that it's always going to work out for you because they're often a legal requirement, but even if they're not a legal requirement, they're often a very useful source of protection and support, but you don't want to rely on them too much because then you're very vulnerable. And often there's been the case that um, not just New Zealand companies, but overseas companies have found that these joint ventures are formed, intellectual property is shifted, and then magically sometimes the joint ventures fail, there may not be assets there, and uh, many companies have had to leave with their tails between their legs. And it's often tough to you know, be able to um, see if you can get some protection under the law. Is that right? I don't think you want to use the legal system in China as a way of getting your protection. I mean, once you're in there thinking about going to court, you've lost already. Um, so you want to avoid that at all costs. And as I, it, it may not be the defining difference as to whether there's a joint venture partnership. Uh, Elon Musk quite famously negotiated a wholly owned uh, subsidiary in China for his electric vehicle venture. And that at the time was despite the formal requirement that everything in the auto industry must have a Chinese joint venture partner. So he got the 100% equity, but he still had an investment agreement that required a certain amount of technology transfer and IP transfer. And he's there presumably because the Chinese government thinks that it is good for China for him to be making his electric vehicles in China. So the ownership factor may not be the most important one. And I said earlier, there's, there's a lot of ways of doing business in China without necessarily having a joint venture partner. And the way most Kiwi firms do it, particularly the smaller or medium-sized ones, is they will not actually own assets in China. They will work through a contract manufacturer or a local partner who takes on certain tasks for them, whether that's actually producing the product on site or whether it's undertaking various kinds of market development and distribution functions. And so the New Zealand firm won't actually be technically an investor in China, but it will be growing the business activity in some way there. Now you've done uh, a bunch of uh, um, case studies with various people, including Blunt, the umbrella maker um, from Wellington. But uh, Blunt has had some success. Tell us about you know how they've um, operated in China and what they've found. Yeah, we did a, a case study with um, Blunt Umbrellas. It's one of our wonderful success stories. They will tell you that getting it right in China is not easy. And they had a number of issues that you could call teething problems. And it was a learning experience for the company. And they have had issues. So they make their umbrellas in China under contract. They don't own the fa factory. They use a contract manufacturer. 
they did have initial starting problems with a manufacturer who just didn't get the quality control right. So a contract manufacturer may promise you great quality, may give you some initial samples, which may be wonderful, and then you do the full production line and you have a defect rate that is unacceptably high. So that's one thing to learn around just the quality control, very practical measures around working with a contract manufacturer. But what Blunt has also discovered, as many Kiwi firms and many international brands have discovered, is that there is also an intellectual property issue that they have to work quite hard to protect their intellectual property. Because as I said, you don't want to go through the courts. Um, you don't want to try and enforce your copyright or your designs using the legal system. So this means working with the kind of contract manufacturer that you can trust. And after some teething problems, Blunt found a, an excellent contract manufacturer that maintained the quality and could do a better job of preventing IP leakage. Tell me about that IP yeah. leakage and how that can happen in China. So, well, this, this can happen anywhere in the world. Um, but when you possess a, a technological advantage or a design idea that is part of a key part of why you do your business well, it's your defining attribute of your product or it's part of the ingredient, potentially other players can copy that. And so it could be literally, you know, infringing on a trademark or a company logo or something like that, or it could be copying the underlying technology, um, the specific design ideas. And it is hard to enforce this kind of intellectual property ownership in any context where there are players who have the means and capacity to copy what you're doing. If they can get away with it, it's hard to enforce that in any country. And because China is such an enormous manufacturing sector with a very well-developed producing economy, the production capacity is very high. The, the capacity to copy and reverse engineer design ideas is also very high. And there's a lot of enterprising people here. And so not just smaller companies like Blunt, but also Zespri has discovered that to control their IP and to prevent it from leaking out is very difficult. Zespri and Blunt and other players have sort of decided that you can't necessarily fight that head on, that you may need to find ways of living with or working around those sorts of IP um, in infringements. It's a tough one because obviously China now is our biggest export market alongside Australia, if you include services, although with not a lot of tourism going on at the moment, that means that China has been a, a big factor in New Zealand's economic recovery over the last year, buying a lot of our, our goods in particular. And it's always going to be an attractive market. And the the temptation is to just say, well, you know, this is a cost of doing business. We just have to keep on going in there. But should people be or can people be, you know, protect themselves, be more careful so that, you know, they don't automatically have to lose half a billion dollars just to establish themselves on the ground? Well, luckily, we only have a small number of companies that have really lost in the order of that much money, Fonterra has failed twice in China and has drawn back considerably. So now we, you know, they focus basically on just selling the commodity to China rather than trying to produce in China. And for many companies, the export model will be the way to go. But for certain kinds of services uh, in particular, or certain kinds of manufacturing options, you have to grow more of a business inside China. And 
What is interesting is despite the rise of tension between the US and China over the trade war and the tech war, which has seen a number of companies divert out of China and sort of move some of their production into Vietnam or other places where they won't be caught by the tariffs or the US restrictions, but the overall volume of um, investment going into China has not actually declined. Last year was a bumper year for going into China. And companies are increasingly realizing that if they want to sell into the China market, at least in certain product areas, they have to have an in-China for China strategy, which means a bit more investment on the ground in the country, uh, even though it is risky and it is subject to various kinds of restrictions. Just to step back now from the specifics of New Zealand businesses in China, there's been quite a shift in the mood some of the thinking around the geopolitics, if you like, of China's relations with the rest of the world, particularly over the last four or five years. Uh, initially, when China was connecting up to the world, when it joined the World Trade Organization, and New Zealand was one of the big supporters, early supporters of that, and New Zealand had the first free trade agreement, there was a lot of sort of unfettered enthusiasm. You know, China joining the World Trade system was going to be a great thing. It was going to join the um, international, multinational, rules-based system and we'd all be one happy capitalist pseudo-democracy and uh, we'd all be better off and hundreds of millions of people would be pulled out of poverty in China, which is exactly what has happened. You know, we'd get cheap stuff from China, they'd buy our expensive stuff, we'd all be happy. You know, even there would even be investment in our economy from people from uh, China and companies and maybe even state-owned companies. But, hey, they were companies just like our companies and they were there to serve shareholders and they respected the law and, and um, she'll be right. And then... Over the last decade or so, there's been lots of these experiences, like the ones that Fonterra and Zespri and Lion Nathan and Carter Holt and a few others have had, all around the world. So Europe and in the States, where there's been big losses, joint ventures dissolved. Essentially, it hasn't been simple that behind the borders in China and sometimes in front of the borders in China, there hasn't been an adherence to this rules-based system that we all thought we'd signed up to. And now there's this... Um, perhaps more cautious, more sceptical view emerging. And it's not just, in my view, not just a, you know, Trumpy thing. This is something that business organisations, you know, countries all around the world who have had these experiences have thought, actually, we need to be a bit careful here. This is a bit different. Uh, how would you describe that sort of change of mood over the last four or five years? I think there obviously has been a change. And I think Europe and the US and other parts of the world have woken up to, to two shifts, maybe three. But the first one is the fact that as China has grown richer, it has become more militarily powerful and it is now in a position to uh, potentially threaten the US preeminence that we have lived with for the last 50, 60 years. And the security sphere has become uh, central in certain areas of the economy. So what we think of as business transactions not having anything to do with military rivalry, uh, when it comes to technology, it is not quite, it is not clear what is a civilian technology and what is a military technology. And so several companies, not 
mostly not New Zealand companies, but some of the big technology players have discovered that they actually can't draw a line between what is civilian technology and therefore open for business as usual and what is potentially security-related, military-related and subject to restrictions. And the US has ramped up its restrictions on the technology front for security reasons. But there's another development that has gone alongside that um, is the idea that you referred to before, which is the expectations that as China joined the world economy, it would liberalize, it would become more like an Anglo-American Western economy, have proved wrong. China has, in fact, maintained a very large state sector and beyond the state ownership in the economy has retained and in some ways increased an array of government interventions that are designed from an industrial policy perspective to create advantages for Chinese firms to develop increasing technological autonomy for China so that it doesn't rely on foreign technology, that they they have a sort of tech nationalism agenda of their own. And the fear, I think, that... uh, Europe, Europe, as much as the US has woken up to, is realizing that while China has selectively engaged with the rest of the world, it has not opened its own uh, economy to the same degree. So there's a recent report came out last month from the Rhodium Group and the European partners that pointed out just how many industry sectors in China are almost wholly or strongly dominated by Chinese firms, and that's in things like aviation, finance, uh, automobiles, mobile technology, obviously things like data platforms. Uh, Western firms don't have access to the Chinese market. Um, So there are certain large sectors of the economy where foreign competitors are not allowed into China, which obviously then creates market disadvantages for the firms that are locked out, but over the long term may mean that Chinese competitors develop capacities that then allows them to go out into the world and compete more effectively on the basis of their domestic market strength because they've been able to sort of grow on the basis of economies of scale and the sort of protected home market. So there could be longer term implications on the sort of corporate front about who's going to win for market share, not just within China, but globally. So I think, although because of the nature of New Zealand firms, we don't tend to be operating in those sectors so much, we haven't caught that uh, nearly as much as European firms or American firms have. But for some players, it may become an increasing issue. And that enthusiasm has dried up, but there's still plenty of trade going on. If, If anything, you know, the the, the sea lanes between China and America are still jam-packed with ships. There's still queues of ships outside ports. New Zealand's own exports of um, agricultural products are going gangbusters. Sheep, beef, forestry, fish, dairy, now the number one uh, uh, export destination is China. I mean, how, how do you think this is going to develop over the next decade or so where you've got these apparent shifts towards not quite geopolitical trading groups or some sort of, you know, 1930s style carving up of the world. But it's not quite as simple as it seemed pre-2008 or so. What's what's your view on how New Zealand sort of tiptoes through the tulips on this one? Well, with caution, because I think it's going to get uh, more complicated. And I think there will be the increased growth in the Chinese market, uh, which is going to exert a, a kind of centripetal force uh, for the 
the greater Asia-Pacific economy that, you know, if firms simply respond to where the market demand is, they're going to realise that directly or indirectly, much of their profit is sort of tracing back to doing business with China, whether directly with China or with supply chain partners outside of China, but in the greater region. And that is the the momentum is for an increasingly China-centric regional economy that runs Australia, New Zealand, up in an arc along the Western Pacific up to, to China. And that that is where the market logic takes you, or I should say it's a sort of mixed market government hand behind it, but that is where the incentives for firms will be. But the geostrategic competition uh, that is running alongside this market development is probably going to throw more than a few spanners in the works. And the firms that are going to feel that uh, initially are going to be the ones whose products are of this sort of dual use nature where there is a potential overlap between military and civilian technology, where New Zealand firms might find that they are wanting to do business with a Chinese entity that is on the US entity list, which basically says this firm is blacklisted, we do not want anyone doing business with them. Uh, And the other sort of potential disruption, of course, is China as the sort of central market in the region with the biggest buying power Uh, is in a position to flex its muscles and engage in what's often called coercive economic diplomacy. Uh, And, and, you know, Australia has found this out. So Australian wine exports to China collapsed at the end of last year because the Chinese chose to cut them off. They didn't do that for the iron ore exports because they actually want Australian iron ore. Yeah, they can't do without (laughs) it. That's right. And interestingly, the Brazilians who have supplied iron ore have had a couple of dam collapses, so they're they're still reliant on the Australians, and it's one of the reasons (laughs) why the iron ore price is at a crazy level high. And I suspect one of the reasons why the Australians feel so confident about, you know, attacking the Chinese from a distance. You wouldn't want to be a wine producer or a barley producer or a sugar producer or or a coal producer because you've been hammered. But overall, Australia's done okay in large large part because of the iron ore. Should New Zealand in the in the long run, maybe pull back a bit from, you know, going headlong into China just because it looks great and try to diversify a bit. Because, you know, up until the, you know, 90s, 80s and 90s, New Zealand was quite reliant on Britain. Yeah. And um, we got the shock of the of Britain joining the EU. And now they're leaving the EU. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we realised we needed to be diversified. Do we need to think about diversification again? I think it would make sense. I mean, but New Zealand is not a state-controlled economy. So even if it wanted to, the government cannot flick a switch and say, you know, send more of your product over there, not over there. So this is a decision that individual firms will make on in terms of their horizon scanning. Is it sensible to rely so much on one market? What are our options? I mean, one of the reasons why Australia has actually done okay, despite the Chinese having restricted various product categories, it's not just that, well, they've continued to buy the iron ore. It's because... Well, if they're not buying wine from Australia, they're buying more wine from somewhere else. And that therefore, that means that there are alternative markets that Australian produced wine uh, producers can sell into because the trade has been diverted from those markets into China. And of course, some diversified players, I believe this is the case with lobster and wine in some cases, that they will then ship into the Chinese market from another point. <laughs> through so the that, back door. Yep. So they will sell through Chile or some other country that, you know, 
if there's production happening elsewhere in the world. And so world trade may get rearranged, but if there isn't an actually an overall drop in demand, it may well be that a disruption caused by you know, a political cutoff can be worked around by reshuffling. You know, if they're not buying from New Zealand or if they're not buying from Australia, well, they're going to buy from somewhere else. Uh, so if, as long as the overall level of demand is remains high, you could say our exporters may may meet that one with the flexibility and resourcefulness that we would hope that they display. Some fancy footwork required. <laughs> Natasha, thank you very much. Um, that was when the facts changed. They're certainly changing a lot in the relations with China and around the world. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was Natasha Hamilton-Hart from Auckland University. After the break, we're going to talk to Sam Rogovin from the Lowy Institute in Australia, who's been looking very closely at how the Chinese are trying to bully Australia and how Australia's responded. Here's some interesting ideas on how New Zealand could deal with it. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Welcome to Sam Rogovin, who is the director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program in Australia and a really close observer of the geopolitics of this region. We're going to talk today about um, how Australia has been thinking about and dealing with China. Sam, a welcome in to uh, When the Facts Change. Great to have you on board. Hi, Bernard, and thanks for having me, and good day to your listeners. Cheers. Uh, I particularly liked a recent column that um, you produced for The Interpreter, 
on the Lowy Institute's uh, site, which talked about how Australia has actually not been hurt that badly by some of the ructions in the relationship in the last year or so. And actually, it's quite a sensible thing for it to, you know, sit still a bit and uh, and and let China, in a way, hurt itself. Could you give us the background on what Australia has done over the last year or so to so sort of aggravate China? Well, it's been longer than that, actually. I mean, the, the last year, the Chinese uh, embassy here in, uh, in Canberra produced a list of uh, 14 grievances against Australia, which included everything from uh, foreign investment decisions, uh, the decision to ban Huawei from our 5G network, public statements that the government has made about uh, uh, about coronavirus and the, uh, uh, calling for inquiry into the cor- origins of coronavirus and many other things besides. Uh, and over the last 12 months or so, getting on for sort of 13 or 14 months now, we've seen a, a rolling campaign of, uh, of economic measures by China, some tariffs, some other non-tariff trade measures uh, that have um, attempted to hurt Australia in, in, in various ways economically uh, to to punish Australia and, I guess, to convince Australia to uh, change policy in various ways. My colleague at the Lowy Institute, Roland Rajar, crunched the numbers on this uh, after about a year had uh, had passed and discovered, in fact, that uh, most of those exporters had found alternative markets and th- there wasn't an awful lot of evidence, you know, with some uh, specific exceptions, there wasn't a lot of evidence of, uh, of Australia actually having been economically damaged by these trade measures. That's the strange thing, isn't it? Um, that when you impose tariffs on imports from the likes of Australia, in many ways, you're actually only punishing your own people. So that, that's, I think, a factor that's often missed in these conversations. When you impose tariffs, and this is something actually that President Trump never seemed to understand, when you impose tariffs, you actually hurt your own consumers and your own economy. It means you have to go to other sources to look for the same products. And inevitably, those products are going to be either not as good or not as cheap. Uh, or the other option actually is to not have those products at all. So you, you are imposing costs on your own economy. And one of the really interesting products which um, a lot of New Zealanders perhaps aren't aware of that China buys from Australia and is in fact the biggest export earner for Australia is iron ore. Can you explain for us why, for example, the Chinese haven't really had a crack at iron ore yet and why it's the sort of last thing to have a go at? So this would would in effect be the nuclear option in terms of Australia-China trade relations. Iron ore is a huge export for Australia and incredibly important to the Chinese economy, in particular in the last decade or so when uh, China's responded to uh, various economic shocks by, you know, pump priming the construction and infrastructure parts of its economy. Uh, And of course, you need a lot of steel to do that. Steel, you need iron ore. So, were China ever to sort of threaten or, uh, that that export market, that would have an enormous enormous consequences for Australia, but also would be hugely damaging to the Chinese economy. And the problem is that for China is that it doesn't have a market anywhere else uh, that's comparable to the Australian market that can deliver at the kind of scale that Australia can deliver. Uh, iron ore exports. They are looking. They're looking in Africa and they're looking in uh, in South America. Uh, but in the foreseeable future, there's nothing 
no alternative market. So we've seen the, the Chinese response is quite sort of blunt and not very nuanced at all. It seems like a quite a bullying approach, and it's, it's certainly made us think twice before we've said anything. Can you explain to our audience why China seems so aggressive and loud on, on these things, and um, perhaps explain the, the idea of the wolf warrior diplomat? Well, there are, there are two ways to explain this approach. One way is to say that the Chinese are simply naive and don't really understand how their tough and at times really quite offensive uh, approach to foreign governments. They don't understand how this is received in these foreign countries. Uh, and they don't understand consequently the type of damage it's doing to them in their diplomatic relations with these countries. The other interpretation is that the Chinese understand perfectly well, but they're doing it anyway because they don't care. Now, the second interpretation is probably more worrying because it, it suggests that China does have a good grasp of, of its own position and understands that it can get its way eventually by simply pushing really hard and by being aggressive and offensive. Um, I would probably, I would inject a kind of third element into it, which is to say that we should never forget how much of China's diplomacy is actually intended for a home audience mm. rather than foreign audience. I don't know enough about the Chinese system to say, to put a sort of rough figure on, on how big a factor this is, but I think it is important never to forget that when, you know, when you read stories about Chinese diplomats being offensive and being uh, unnecessarily aggressive in, in a way that looks obviously counterproductive in terms of their relationship with the foreign country, you have to think about what audience they are serving back in Beijing mm. and uh, whether they're, uh, you know, either getting explicit instructions or at least getting implicit signals from back home that, this, that it will do them no harm to, uh, to be seen to be behaving this way. And could you give us an idea of um, how the arrival of uh, President Xi Jinping as the leader in China has perhaps changed the way China has, is operating on the global stage? Um, because for a lot of New Zealanders, we think of uh, China, particularly around the 2008 uh, time when we signed the free trade agreement with China, as you know, a relatively um, benign, cuddly uh, type of um, uh, trading partner. But how has Xi Jinping changed the tone and the way that, that China is operating on the global stage? Well, the China experts that I consult on these things, and I'm, I should stress I'm not one of them, the ones I consult are, I think, a little bit split on this. And there are some who argue that the, the, the basic framework of China's current approach to the world and to its foreign policy was in place really before Xi Jinping took over. Uh, and that he has really brought it to its full uh, fruition. There is also another school, I think maybe it's a complementary explanation, which basically says that China hasn't changed that much in its behaviour. It's just getting bigger. It's just getting an awful lot bigger. And, and you know, I think the the growth of its PLA, the military, is um, is a good example of this. And China generally just so much bigger that even if its behaviour hadn't changed at all, even if it hadn't become more assertive over the last 20 years, it would be making a major impact on world affairs in a way that would be disturbing, you know, the kind of status quo that we in Australia and you in New Zealand are used to and, and, and were comfortable with. Now, um, 
now that we've got this perhaps more competitive or combative um, situation, how is Australia preparing or making sure that it's strong enough if if this some of this um, diplomatic noise and trade noise turns into something more, more serious on the ground? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the article you referred to at the beginning, the, the argument that I tried to make here is that the best thing that Australia can do to prepare itself for a future in which it is going to be subject to uh, more Chinese pressure and coercion, the best thing Australia can do is to get its economic fundamentals right so that the kind of pressure that China can impose is something that we can survive and basically bounce back from really quickly. So basically what I'm calling for is a resilient Australia in, in economic aspect, but I would actually include the, the, the military and diplomatic aspects as well. It's not a country that is that is loud and feels the need to punch back because we're always going to be at a disadvantage given the, rel- the size differences between us and China. But it is a country that is strong enough that it can build a society and an economy which can uh, basically absorb these blows when they come occasionally and then get on with business after the pressure has, uh, has let off. And then over the long term, what you would hope, and I think what, what you can reasonably expect, is that China learns that these pressure campaigns are just not worth it that the kind of costs that China incurs by uh, imposing this kind of pressure are greater than the benefits it could hope to get from uh, from imposing it. So what would you say to you know, our diplomats and, um, and ministers and people in our large exporters like Fonterra about how we should approach the, the sort of um, quite loud, you could say, bullying approach of China here? How should we deal with this? So far, we've been perhaps a lot lower profile than Australia. And in recent times, we've withdrawn the word genocide, for example, from a parliamentary motion and have been criticised by others in Australia and in the UK for being too um, subservient or weak on China. What, what would you say to New Zealand about how we could approach the issue? I'm not sure that New Zealand is doing an awful lot wrong at the moment. I think that New Zealand is in the lucky position that in in strategic terms, it will always have Australia there uh, in its corner. So New Zealand is in a sense protected from the the rise of China as a military and a strategic power uh, because it is that much further away from from the centre of gravity, if you like, of that uh, of the contest that's emerging between China and the United States and others. The, the position is that I would take is not that different to the one that I just suggested for Australia, which is that you build the economic fundamentals so that you can withstand these occasional pressure campaigns and not feel that you have to give up too much. I mean, that, that is really the test. The, the, the threat is not of China becoming some kind of... Um, you know, military behemoth, which uh, which is militarily expansionist, uh, it's not going to be a power of that kind. The, the the power that China is going to exert in the future is going to be much more subtle, so that it, it, it kind of it injects its way into the decision-making processes of all kinds of governments, including yours and mine, uh, and where it's impossible for those governments to sit down around the cabinet table and, and, and not think, well, if we do this, what will the Chinese do in response? So, uh, you know, the, the, the idea over the long term is to build an economy and a society in which that kind of question doesn't, doesn't uh, place overbearing pressure on your decision-making process.
Yeah, I really like that argument. And your headline, Australia keeps calm while China carries on, uh, uh, which emphasises that... um Perhaps a stoic approach. Um, maybe it should be New Zealand should keep calm while China carries on as well. Sam Rogovin, who is from the Lowy Institute. Sam, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Bernard, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, there we have it. Maybe we don't have so much to lose by standing up to China and expressing our values on human rights. I'd like to thank Natasha Hamilton-Hart from Auckland University and our expert from the Lowy Institute. Thanks also to KiwiBank and subscribe so you don't miss our weekly episodes. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.